Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. This week, we are featuring five country music hit makers in honor of the CMA Awards. The biggest stars are coming together on one stage where the heart of country music beats stronger than ever. Watch as Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood host the 51st annual CMA Awards this Wednesday at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock central on ABC. See powerful collaborations by Kelsey Ballerini and Reba McIntyre. Brad Paisley and Kane Brown, Marin Morris and Nilehorn, and more. It's country's night to shine with unforgettable performances and the best of the best honored in several categories. For more information, visit cmaawards.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Kicking off the first ever and the writer is CMA Week. We have one of the best guests of the season, a guy who's been breaking charts and blurring genres since his very start, a guy whose single off his album as an artist was Die Happy Man, which won BMI Country Song of the Year and was nominated for last year's Grammy for Country Song of the Year, co-written by our one and only Joe London, and has recently achieved a number one album on the Billboard charts with his album Life Changes, which features smash hits, Unforgettable, and Craving You featuring Marin Morris, is the one and only... Let's get to it. And the Writer Is featuring Thomas Rex. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. This week's artist sells out arenas. He writes hits for other artists who also sell out arenas. Although he's genetically predisposed to be a musician, his work ethic is legendary. His music is redefining a genre because he's not afraid to tap into other genres. From Georgia, this guy is not just a rock star, but is a philanthropic trendsetter. And the writer is some new up-and-coming artist, Thomas Rhett. What's up, man? Hey. How are you? Nice to meet you. That was an amazing intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. It'd be great if you literally just walked in and that was the first thing you heard <laughs> right. me say versus us hanging the door, out for yeah. a minute. But, uh, I'm going to use that one. as my show intro. I'm just going to get you to record that and just play oh, yeah. it before every show. Dude, I'm so into it. Yeah. I found out there was, um, uh, when I was with, who was it? There was some artist I was with recently who, I want to say it was Keith, but maybe it wasn't. Somebody who said that they used my house as part of the intro of their show. I think it was Keith. It's possible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they use like the, and, and it was kind of interesting because that's so much of my voice is in it that yeah. it was like, I kind of felt like I was part of like the welcome to Keith Urban. Welcome to the Keith Urban show. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of that song, a friend of mine sitting across the table played me the recording of how you guys wrote that song. Oh, yeah. It is Very unreal. Crazy, right? Yeah. It makes me want to record every, every session that I do. It, do you, you don't record like voice notes? I mean, I record voice notes, but I don't record as long as as long as that. Yeah. Like I just don't, I don't leave a device running. Yeah. I'm the worst co-writer ever. <laughs> I barely show up with a guitar or anything to write with. You're right. But today I did bring a guitar. 
Yeah, it's an old guitar. An old guitar, yeah. Well, how did you find a 1941 guitar? My dad uh, bought it for me for winning an award this year at, a, at an award show. Which award? Uh, ACMs. Nice. Yeah. That's a pretty nice... Uh, it was amazing. That's, that's probably nicer than the actual award. Yeah. Like, to, to a songwriter, well, you know, you're like excited yeah, to have the award. For sure. To have that guitar. Well, yeah, I mean, my dad, it takes him three weeks to figure out which pair of flip-flops he's going to buy. So for him to go and actually purchase something like that was a, was a big feat. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So here's some random six degrees of separation for you and me. Okay. Uh, we met once before. We did. Yeah. We met on stage for the Country BMI Awards when I won for Compass because wow. it was the, they asked everyone to come up on stage who had never won an award before yeah. and that was your first award. Yeah. And so there's some picture of me on stage with you and Brett Eldridge I think was up there. Yeah. And a few others and I just remember being like wow this is awesome. I'm never leaving Nashville <laughs> but that's the last time I've been on stage. So at Well that's in my bad dude. I thought we'd never met before. No, I mean, well, it'd be weird if you remembered that. Like for me, you know, it's out of context too. If you were in right. LA and all of a sudden, you know, we met at that kind of award show. Yeah. I don't think we actually talked. I think it was just like, oh, this is so Passing. cool. Here's some awesome, you know. Here's here's the difference. In in Nashville, country stars show up to the BMI Awards <laughs> right. and the ASCAP Awards. Yeah. They're they're a huge part of that community. Sure. So I had never seen that. There were there are country Artists who show up who don't win awards, right? That that would never happen in pop. It's hard <laughs> enough to get you know the the pop stars who write to show up to get their own award. Yeah. Let alone here, it's it's a different environment. Yeah, I mean we I think we take pride in in how much of a community we are. Uh, I mean, not just country artists, but even the the artists we respect the songwriters so much because we do realize that. Our careers would be nothing without having amazing songs pitched to us every day. So, the BMIs are obviously that one night um, of the year that you do get to celebrate the songwriter. And because us artists love the songwriters so much, you know, even if we're not up for awards, we love to go and support all of our friends who had you know huge years. And like my dad's won songwriter of the year a couple of times, and and uh, people that I grew up with have also won many awards. And so, it really is a cool town because everybody kind of knows everybody and everybody kind of shows up for everybody and supports everybody. So um, it is a really cool community that we have here in I Nashville. I mean, I imagine you're, that you guys basically have these barbecues and these like, you know, these random like, that at a wedding, it's just basically, it's just the, that award ceremony, just a different thing to celebrate. Totally. You know, it's like it's, you know, football Sundays or something and right. everyone around is just... You know, just happens to be a random hit songwriter, right? Yeah, like, yeah. See, it seems to be that way for sure. Um, and everybody, I mean, everybody's just friends. You know, everybody really does support each other, and it's a fun spot to live for sure yeah. and be a part of. Well, okay, so let's 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 give some background. <clears throat> so you are from Georgia, yes, born in Georgia, um, and then you move here when you're five. Yes, okay. Um, were you already playing music basically out of the womb? Pretty much. Yeah. Were you playing guitar <laughs> or were you playing piano or was it sort of just doing what? Yeah. More you're... more so just singing what was on the radio. I, I mean, I, you know, be, having a dad that was a country music singer and just a music lover. Um, I feel like from the age of like four, I was loved to sing songs that were on the radio. My dad did a great job at like really playing me and my sister a wide variety of music. So obviously, country music was my first love because that's what dad did for a living. But on the way to school every morning, like dad would play something different to us every day. Like one day it'd be freaking DMX, and the next day it would be like Paul McCartney's solo records, and then it would be Aretha Franklin, and then like Ricky Skaggs. And so my sister and I, as much as we probably hated it at the time, being four years old, because all we cared about was Will Smith and Justin Timberlake, um, as you get older, you start to really appreciate the fact that your dad ingrained amazing music into your head. And I think, I think that's what makes me such a versatile writers because I grew up loving so many different kinds of music. So um, I didn't start playing guitar until I was like 15 or 16 in high school and really started playing guitar for the reason everyone else plays guitars, just to impress women. So, yeah, right, totally. Yeah. Um, why do people, and even if you grow up listening to DMX and uh, Justin Timberlake, which is kind of a funny image, <laughs> but you know, why don't... Um, at a private school, yeah. At a private school? Yeah. <laughs> So 
you're showing up in like a uniform. Yeah, very lame. DMX, like singing that, like you just down just, the hallways. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't you just continue to write that kind of music? Why did you decide to get into country? I mean, when was that transition of you know what? I really want to write music that yeah. makes sense here, or was it? I mean, to tell you the truth, like when I was in, I think the first band I was ever in, I was in, uh, I was in sixth grade. And my dad had got me a drum kit for my birthday that year, and like a couple other buddies, we were all horrible at our instruments. But we started a band called the High Hill Flip Flops when I was in sixth grade, and we were a uh, a punk rock band that basically wanted to be the Ramones. Like our lead singer sang in a British accent. You know, we all dyed our hair black. A Nash a Nashville kid yeah. singing with a British accent. Yeah, sick. And um, and my uncle uh, came came over to Dad's house one day and recorded a little four song EP on us, and we played one show ever. It was at Where'd Matthew Johnson's it? Halloween party. It was pretty awesome. Did people show up? Like 30. Yeah. Yeah. Were, good... you, were you the coolest kid in school? <laughs> no, we were the opposite of that. Really? Yeah, no one really was into what we were doing. Everyone that I grew up with was country music listeners only. Uh, and so once I got into high school, um, that's when I started playing guitar. And obviously, that's when my dad kind of stopped doing the artist thing and became strictly just a songwriter. And so I got really intrigued at what that looked like. Um, and I've always been intrigued by country music, mainly just because of the stories I thought you know, they told and, and just the, the genuineness that I thought that the singers sang with. And so as I started to go through high school, learn how to play guitar and learning country songs on the radio. And, uh, Who are you learning? Man, Eric Church was, is still one of the biggest reasons that I ever wanted to write songs in the first place. Um, the quirkiness in which he wrote, the kind of just like the... You know, uh, I don't care attitude. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna do me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write whatever I want to write. Uh, don't care if it offends you. This is what I like to write. And I just was very inspired by him uh, and and a guy named Merle Haggard. Uh, who, yeah, um, that's who I, that's who my dad grew up listening to. And so obviously Merle had a had a big spot in my heart. And I think just the songwriting and the way that they told the saddest story ever in three minutes is what really drew me to country music. Um, and obviously in 2017, country music is somewhat of a loose term. Uh, it's kind of like country meets pop meets hip hop meets rock. So right. um, it's kind of like my dream come true that I get to be a country singer, but also get to like use all my other influences to kind of make my own brand of country music. Did so. you get to tell? Have you ever told Eric Church all that? Yeah, I got to write with him last year. Um, Were you nervous? Very. Really? Yeah, because when you see Eric Church, um, the Eric Church that's on stage and he has the hat real low and the sunglasses, like you think, like this dude could seriously mess me up. You know, yeah, it does have that vibe. Um, but then, you know, I won't give like his cover away. Uh, but when I did write with him, and the shades were off, and the hat was off, it's like just a, a very, very sweet guy. Um, we got to write, and then uh, got to exchange phone numbers, and like sometimes I'll see a text that says Eric Church, and I still get kind of giddy. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, man, he he was a huge, huge reason that I ever wanted to write songs. So, did you ever meet Merle Haggard? No. I saw him play with. Uh, I went and saw. Bob Dylan, yeah, and he was opening, and I, you know, I knew of him, but I'd never seen him. And he was old enough where people were. He needed two people to kind of go underneath his arms and sure. carry him to the middle of the stage and perform. And within a song, he's flipping off the audience, yeah. and like as part of a lyric. And the guy's got to be at that point mid seventies oh, at yeah. least, you know. And Dylan went up, and yeah, it's Bob Dylan, obviously. Great for what he does, yeah. but you can't understand a word he's saying. Right. Merle Haggard went up, and I just went home. And was like, I'm going to listen to anything and everything Merle Haggard. Yeah. Just get into that because you really feel like he's a. If he, I think he actually did get arrested a couple times, oh, yeah, but dude. he definitely was like, you believe the outlaw. Oh yeah, and that. Well, even like two, literally two weekends ago, I played at this thing in New Orleans. It was called the Bayou Superfest, and it was a big festival, and like. The most random lineup of all time. It was like Dan and Shay, me, or no, Dan and Shay, Hank Williams Jr., me, Blake Shelton. Like, I don't know that it gets any more random than that as a lineup. And Hank Williams Jr. was obviously a part of that outlaw phase. So, like, Hank Jr., uh, Willie Nelson, but more peaceful, Um, Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings, that that whole crowd is like, that wasn't, that's not fake writing. 
Like no, they're real. That's they're, real yeah, life stuff. They're real um, alcoholics. With, yeah. Like with they really with, are with well, law problems. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's what made it. That's what made that whole era of kind of outlaw country music so famous. Is because, um, kind of like hip hop in a lot of ways, like bad boy era, like that stuff was this real, you know. And I think that fans will always gravitate towards real. Um, Did you ever feel pressure to write that kind of country? Still feel it, man. Like every every time I go on stage at a festival, I'm terrified because, you know, I mean, I'm wearing skinny jeans and checkered vans, uh, right. and you know, then you got Hank Williams Jr. coming on stage, uh, and it's obviously just a whole different crowd. Um, and there are definitely a lot of traditional country listeners that absolutely hate what I represent <laughs> as far as the genre goes. But at the end of the day, if 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 you are to take any note or knowledge from Hank or from Merle, they will always tell you that doing you. And being yourself is the only way you're ever going to be successful. Um, so even if even if what I do is way different than what they do, it's still what I do. So, I I had a a tour. My first tour was opening for Jurassic Five. Mm-hmm. I just did maybe like maybe a few weeks, but just being like a, a white guy on acoustic guitar, kind of doing hip hop in front of. Not that Jurassic Five is the most urban of hip hop, sure. but it was still like <laughs> hip hop and performing in front of an audience that didn't want to see me every night. Yeah, is like a really complex thing to do. But it did teach me like how to try to write songs that even those people can sure. understand. Absolutely. Do you feel? Um, have you been able to integrate that kind of? Well, I guess you like you were just saying you you like making sure that you're really honest in your songs. Sure. But have you integrated any of those things in your songs where you're like, that's kind of strange that I sing this song about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, on the new record, there's songs that talk about things that I have personally never experienced, um, which is kind of hard to come across as authentic. But I do feel like if you can also tap into the way that many other people in the world feel. Uh, and you can write about that. Even if you haven't experienced personally, I do think that people can take what you say about their life and take it to heart. Um, but I am way better at writing about what I know. Sure. Um, I know about high school heartbreak. I know about high school love. I know about marriage. I know about kids as of three weeks ago. Right. Um, so I, I love taking past experiences, past experiences and, and putting them into songs. Nostalgia is like one of my favorite I love songs that are nostalgic, and I, and I kind of feel like that's what I do best. So when you, you know, you're you're out here, you're now. Let's go back to the band. What is it called? The high heeled, the high heeled flip flops. Yeah, you're in this band. You're playing for thirty people. How do you get from that to like? Oh yeah, you know what? I'm gonna start writing my own songs and making them because yeah. you're playing drums at the time. Yeah. And so when are you, you know, you said it's 16, 17, you start playing for so girls like you. Yeah. You know, are you writing, is that when you started writing or were you just doing covers? Just doing covers, man. I can remember like the first song I ever learned how to play and sing on guitar was, um, was a song by uh, Matchbox 20. Which one? Um, it's 3 a.m. and I must be lonely. Yeah. It's like the easiest song ever to play and sing. Sure. Um, and so I really just, I learned how to play guitar just by learning songs that were on the radio. Uh, and I dabbled in songwriting, but I, even to this day, I'm not a good writer by myself. Like I can come up with an idea by myself, but once I started co-writing with other people in college, it made it, first of all, it was way more fun. Second of all, you can bounce what idea you have off of other people's heads. And like when you collectively all agree on a verse, it makes it that much cooler than if it's just you agreeing on a verse. Um, and so when I was in college, I think I signed a publishing deal when I was 19. I don't know how. Uh, because I was in a I was in a cover band playing nothing but terrible versions of Eric Church and Jason Aldean songs, and there was a publisher there uh, named Ben Vaughn. Do y'all know Ben? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Ben was at this at this place that I was playing at, and he asked my dad if I could write songs, and my dad said, "I don't I don't think so. I don't really know." Uh, so Ben signed me to a very very uh, basically just like a developmental publishing deal. Had he said, "Yeah, he can write songs," maybe it wouldn't have been so developmental. Maybe, yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's um, like, I don't, I don't know if he can write. Yeah, okay. and I, and I, and I definitely had somewhat of a leg up because my dad was a, was letting me write with his co-writers. Um, so I was writing with with BMI songwriters of the year. You know, I was writing with Bobby Pinson and Dallas Davidson and and Luke Laird and Ashley Gorley and Shane McEnany and these people when I was nineteen years old, and they probably were just doing it as a favor. Uh, to my dad, and then uh, I think it was a one year into my developmental publishing deal that I got my very first cut, and it wasn't with 
my dad. It was with two other people that had never had a cut before. So I think it was that at that point where I was like, maybe I can do this without, you know, without my dad's supervision or help. And so that's when I started to get more cuts and uh, didn't have a single at this point. But I, I noticed that these artists were cutting my songs and they did a great job, but I always wanted to know what it would sound like if it was me doing it on the radio. And so that's when I started to get shopped around for a record deal. And uh, I signed my record deal when I was 21 years old. Were, so. you, were you in college during all this or did you drop out? Yeah, I was in college and then... So you're going to class or, I don't know, were you in a fraternity or were you in like... Well, or? We, were, we had social clubs. They weren't really right. considered fraternities, but yeah. But you're going to some sort of, whatever, social clubs or groups of friends and, and, and you're starting to get songs cut by artists while you're in school. Yeah. I guess the assumption is that your plan of learning how to play guitar to get women probably started working around that. Yeah, time. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it just, you know, I don't think I don't think my friends fully know how to fully knew how to take it because you Do know, they now? Yeah, well I mean like all my friends that I had in college are still my best friends today. Um, because they were all kind of with me before anything ever happened. Um, and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget me and like 30 of my best friends in college went to Walmart the night that Jason Aldean's CD came out and we all bought two copies yeah. and literally just had my song on repeat and had a party. And like, that's the shit that's amazing. You know? I, I'd still go in, I bought a CD last week because I had a song come out and I went to, uh, I went to Barnes & Noble because it was the only place I can think of that even has CDs. I think Target maybe has some Walmart. Still Target, has Walmart, it, yeah. You know, it's like, Still going and taking off the shrink wrap and looking and seeing your name in it is the it's pretty thing. rad. Yeah. Did, did you get to meet Jason Aldean at the time? Yeah. Um, I he I remember I, I went to his number one party, um, but it wasn't for my song. But I remember at the album release party, he he hand wrote um, the lyrics and gave them out to all the songwriters. And so, um, of all the things I've had framed, that is still one thing that hangs in my house because it's just kind of like where it all began. And he signed the bottom of it. And since then, I've played. 150 plus plus shows with Jason. So that's so strange. Came pretty full circle. Yeah. The, the, I don't know. I don't, and who the, shop? Who shopped you around? Was that the Ben Vaughn publisher? took me around? Oh, ben yeah. Did. Ben took me around with um with uh my granddaddy's old Gibson guitar that never stayed in tune, and I literally had two songs. Um, one of those songs being a song that I released as my second single called uh, "If I Could Have a Beer with Jesus." And I'm convinced that that song got me a record deal because I think it kind of showed labels that I could also write. I wasn't just like a, a face that could just get pitch songs and cut them and have hits. But I think Beer With Jesus was a song that kind of got me a deal. Um, and there were a few record labels that did offer me the day that I went and played for them. But at the end of the day, it kind of just felt like, you know, Big Machine sort of just felt like family at the end of the day. Um, and I've been with them for, I guess, six years now. And... uh before you released anything, were you feeling any pressure to to sort of uh, live up to your dad's career? Yeah, and like also, no no one understood why I. Everyone thought that I dropped my last name like legally because uh, my name is Thomas Red Akins Jr. My dad's name is Thomas Red Akins, and so when I started going by Thomas Red, everyone thought like, you know, are you not proud of your dad's name? Like, you know, this artist, you know, a, bu- a bunch of people were like, I bet he's just going to ride on his dad's coattails. His dad's probably paying people to get his songs played. And my dad was really good at letting me make all my own mistakes. You know, I mean, he definitely mentored me and kind of helped me at the beginning putting set lists together. And, you know, he, I remember he was at my very first band rehearsal. We were all <laughs> miserable. Um, but looking back at it now, making all those mistakes definitely led me to where I am now and playing clubs in front of 12 people. Uh, you know, you, you learn what to do and learn what not to do uh, in a show setting. And now... This year, you know, was our first ever time headlining arenas, and so it's just, it's just very bizarre. It's so crazy. Do yeah. you get nervous? Yeah. Um, if I'm not nervous, my band is terrified. Um, really? Yeah. I get really nervous, even if I'm playing like an acoustic gig for like thirty people. Um, honestly, the more people there are, the less nervous I am. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Why? Yeah. I think because when you get into like twenty and thirty thousand people, they, it just kind of looks like a blob. Yeah. Um, so you really can only see like the first, you know, fifty rows of people. Past that, it's just more people. Are so. you able to retain any um, like names or faces? Like, because you have to go to these cities all the time, and the same people who are Uber, you know, Thomas Rhett fans are still waiting in line to see you the second, third, fourth, yeah. fifth time. 
Are you good at that whole game of communicating with fans? Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember faces really well. Names are impossible. Even if, I, even if it's not fan-wise and I met you, I, I have a really hard time remembering names. Um, but there are definitely fans that have stuck around since the very beginning. Like, there's, there's a couple people in Boston um, who came to, like, this radio show I did at some brew house that still are in every single meet and greet that I do anywhere within 300 miles of Boston. No so, way. Yeah, it's unreal. Fans, they're incredible. Yeah, they make what we do possible. Totally. Um, let's go to round here, because I think that's probably the first, it's got to be the first like really big song that you wrote, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did that, um, at the time, had you already gotten the record deal as an artist? Yeah. I was actually just finishing my first record. So did that, did that change any style? Because it doesn't sound, it sounds like them. Maybe that's yeah. production. It doesn't really sound like, I don't feel like that sounds like a you record. No. It sounds like a them record. Where, do you put on you know, a Florida Georgia line hat when you write for that? Or, were you, you know, or when you're writing for your solo stuff after having that kind of hit, did you feel like, oh man, maybe I should have gone in this direction? I mean, how does, how does that feel when you have that kind of a hit? Um, so like even from the first record to now, my, my sound has changed drastically and I feel like it changes every year based on what I'm listening to. Uh, so that being my first record, um, going back to the Eric Church stuff, I really just wanted to make an Eric Church sounding album. Therefore, I used Jay Joyce as my producer who... who um, is obviously Eric Church's producer, has also produced freaking bands like Cage the Elephant. Um, just a very rock and roll badass producer. And I remember going and um, recording 11 songs with Jay in his basement at the time and uh, almost doing every single vocal live uh, with the band that was playing in the same room as me. And I was like, this is awesome. Um, and then, you know, that record took almost a year. And by the time the year was up, I had already changed as an artist. Um, there were three songs that we passed on because I remember Jay was like, Jay's just not a guy that likes, I mean, I'm, I know he loves having hits, but he doesn't want the hit to be a blatant hit. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and so there, there were three songs that went by on the radio that year that I passed on that became number one singles on three other artists. What were they? Um, Running Out of Moonlight was a song that Randy Hauser cut that I almost cut and didn't. Um, what was the other one? There was a song that Billy Currington, co- oh, it was a song called Hey Girl uh, that my dad wrote that was a number one on Billy Currington. I can't remember, can't remember what the third one was, but I just remember at that point, I was like, look, like I want to be cool and I want to make really cool records, but I also have a wife and I need to buy a house. Yeah. Um, and so that was when, so Jay had, Jay recorded Beer With Jesus and he recorded my very first number one called Make Me Wanna. And then I did the last half of the record with a guy named Michael Knox and Luke Laird produced um, a couple of songs. Um, And so like, it's just amazing going from like record one to now where it's like extremely progressive for this genre, so much pop influence. When you turn down a record that your dad wrote, is that a weird thing? Do you call your dad and say, listen, man. Uh, you're gonna have to find some other yeah. artist. I mean, that's that's a unique situation. I don't know many people who are getting yeah. pitch songs in a way from there. It used to be weird. Um, I don't feel guilty about it anymore because my dad has written four number one songs of mine. So I feel like I yeah. feel like he's good to go. Like I don't really yeah, feel I think obligated he's doing okay. to. Right. I don't feel obligated to cut his songs, and I don't feel obligated to put songs that he wrote out as singles. But um. To, to shortly answer your question about around here, like my, that was my wife's ab- absolute favorite song, and we argued for forever about why I wasn't cutting that, and I just didn't feel like it was right for me. Um, and now looking back at it, it wasn't. It was a, it was a Florida Georgia Line song. Uh, got me a little, bit, got a little bit of money in my pocket. Um, gave me a little bit more cred as a songwriter, um, and uh, you know I still play it in my show. Like I do an acoustic little portion, and it's really nice to to go play Thomas Rhett, the songwriter, uh, for my fans. Because your fans, they listen to the radio and, you know, a lot of, I feel like a lot of people that write the songs, they may not know their names. And so, like, it's nice to get out there and be like, hey, you know, these songs that you hear on the radio, um, I wrote a couple of these. And I think it just gives your fans a whole different insight as to, to the artist that you are. And, and Round Here was just one of the songs that didn't make the cut for me, but I think that every, every song eventually will find 
its home, whether that's on the radio or whether it's in you know, some back catalog sitting at Warner Chapel. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When did, when did you meet your wife? Well, we've... Um... We've been in the same school together since we were in first grade. But no way. Yeah. But uh, I don't think we really, we didn't really know know each other until like sixth or seventh grade. So. Wait, so she'd been your girlfriend or wife that whole time? Yeah, we got married in seventh grade. No, yeah. I'm kidding. No, yeah, right. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> we, uh, we were friends all through high school. We dated very briefly in high school. Um, extremely immature right. high school relationship. And then, uh, both dated other people for like five or six years and almost actually married both of those people. Um, and then we both broke up with those people and somehow found our way back uh, with each other. We got married when we were 22, so we're coming up on five years. That's awesome. Yeah. So she is, <laughs> my, I, I think of my wife as being like kind of my, my personal A&R Mine too. You know, it's like you have to run everything by that. And so that's kind of great that she she goes and she can pick out round here and be like, no, that's a huge record. Yeah. Is she, um, does she do that with all your songs? Does she do that with your personal songs? She has to, right? Do yeah. You, you have to run everything by it. If Lauren likes it, it usually means that most other women between the ages of 23 and 30 are going to like it as well. Right. So. Is that just because she's just a fan of music? She's or? just a fan, yeah. And I, and I think that when you lose that fandom or whatever is when you start to really overanalyze music and, and start to look at it as something that it's not. Um, but she listens to my music like she's 17 and in high school. So, Do you know when you write a hit? I think so, but not at all, actually. like I remember when we wrote Die Happy Man, we did this like really terrible work tape on the bus at like three in the morning and... Actually, I remember sending it to my. Uh, sorry, it was a great work tape. Um, but uh, just, I remember just, just to just to give you guys a clue, what's happening? Joe London over here, uh, <laughs> who did "Die a Happy Man" with Thomas, and uh, and now Joe's about to jump off of a building because he's he's angry that. His work tape didn't sound good. Okay, so you go and you do this <laughs> terrible work tape with this shit. Well, the work tape guy. was terrible because I was playing guitar. Um, right. If we're being oh, okay, honest, okay, yeah. Okay. Um, but I remember sonically sitting, excellent, sonically excellent, excellent work tape. Yeah. Yeah, right, ready but to I, go. Um, my Scott would actually kill me if he knew I was saying this. He might not even remember saying this, but I remember sending it to uh, Scott Warshetta, who runs yeah. my record label. And um, I remember the email said. Um, what do you, I said, what do you think of this song? And he goes, it's a really great Ed Sheeran cover. Like, I don't think he thought that I wrote it. I think he thought it was a, like a deep Ed Sheeran cut that I had just put my voice to. Um, and I was like, no, I, like we wrote this. Um, and he goes, wow. And then he started sending it around to the label. And I remember people at the label were like, dude, I think this is a career song for you. Um, and I don't think I would ever tell myself like, hey, I think this is a career song. Like, I knew that Die Happy Man was a hit, but I don't think I never I don't think I ever knew it was gonna change my life the way that it did. So Yeah, it changed a lot of people's lives. Yeah, for sure. Like the guy over here. Yeah. And it's amazing like seeing I me mean, literally every single concert someone gets engaged in the crowd. Do they ever come up on stage? Do you do that? Yeah, a like lot? sometimes if I see a guy like like sometimes they'll make like little signs be like, Hey, I'm trying to propose like while I'm in the middle of a like a rock song 
and like I'll I'll tell people you know like hey this dude's going to come up and propose to his girlfriend. And it's like it's moments like that that you really can tell that music has a huge connection with people. So totally. So well, first of all, die happy man. Before we move on from that, because yeah, it was life changing, but also like the ACMs, you obviously won single. Record of the year, you win top country song for Billboard. You get nominated for Grammys. You get like the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you have to live up to that song? Yeah, I mean, like, is that song is that sort of a thing that? Um, well, that happened. Let's move on. Or do you think does that song now add pressure in any way? I don't think it's pressure, but it definitely haunts me in the back of my brain. Really? Yeah, just because, like. If you look at artists, you know, throughout the years, especially in country music, like I look at somebody like Tim McGraw or like a Kenny Chesney, like, you know, Tim McGraw had I like it, I love it, I want some more of it. Yeah. And then he had Indian Outlaw, and then he had Live Like You Were Dying, and like just this you know, he has fifty number one songs, but of those fifty, like twenty of them were like game changers. Um and as an artist, you don't like hits are great. Because I think they just advance your career in a way of like people know more of your songs. But I think I'm in the business of of wanting to write game changing music, right. and I think because I think Die Happy Man was one of those game changers. It's like you know how many more singles until you get to another game changer, and will you ever have another game changer? And if right. you don't, everyone will only probably remember you for one song. Sure, and that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, but you have. I mean. Obviously, you have it goes like this and make me wanna. Sure, and, you know you have like you have a lot of hits. Yeah, so you still think, but because that was so big, I think it's because it was so big. And I think even if you were to go ask someone that didn't know what country music, like didn't listen to country music at all, they would more than likely say, "Yeah, I've heard that song." Sure, is that the guy that sings that song? You know what right. I'm saying? Right. You want to have you want to have that career where it's like, does that guy sing one of these twelve songs? Right. That were massive, right? Yeah. Do you feel that with um, that that's happening right now with Craving You? Because that's a pretty big record. Yeah, it's a big record. I mean, it's a big record, but you know, I, when I when I think of songs being massive, like if you're talking about country music today, like a song like Body Like a Backroad, where everything lines up, it was a massive hit. It's spent over 20 weeks on Billboard 100. It's been number one on iTunes the day, since the day that it came out. It's streaming more than any country song has ever streamed. Uh, you know, when you have all of those elements, that's when I that's when I see like big song uh, songs that other songs that are so big that other genres know it just because they've flipped to the flipped to the radio once or twice. Right, of course. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, not every song you put out is going to be massive, um, and hits are amazing, and they definitely uh, you know make your career a lot cooler and bigger and better, but. You know, when you have that one song that everybody then for the next five years is trying to copy, I think that's when you know you have a massive song. I kind of feel like song. you did that with the Lee Bryce record. <clears throat> I know I'm going like out of time and all that stuff. With the parking lot party, at least, or maybe that was just when I was starting to listen to country, but it felt like that song was everywhere. And that was, you know, like you've had And it didn't even songs. go number one. It didn't go no, number one? Uh-uh. I think it died at like five, but who's counting? Right, exactly. Do you watch charts? Not like, not, not like a lot of people do. Yeah. I don't even have a media-based password. Right, I'm not allowed to. Okay, I'll so. send. I'll send you one. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> just just to cause problems. Yeah, I get a, an email from your manager, and yeah, she's not gonna be happy. Okay, um, I'm gonna list five people, which usually I do five people, but your list is really long, so I'm just gonna list people and just tell me like first thing that comes off the top of your head. Okay. Okay. I'm really bad at rapid fire, but I'm going to give you my best. Yeah, my it's best okay. Shot. It's okay. Fine. Your dad, Red. Um, one of the most musically diverse songwriters that I know. Scott Borchetta. Uh, I think of power. I think that's the first word that comes to my mind. Power. Power. That's interesting. Yeah. What does that mean? What does that mean? I just feel like. He's just one of those people that like anything that I could ever dream up or fathom, that even if it's a 10-year-away goal, I feel like Scott is the first person that is going to be like, I think I can make that happen, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Eric Church. Just forever badass. Jason Aldean. Hitmaker. 
That's cool. Lee Bryce. Songwriting to its finest. Cool. Um, Virginia Davis, your manager. <laughs> Future president. Yeah, she's very smart. Um, I like this one. Uh, Joe London, Sean Douglas, and Julian Benetta. As a trio? Yeah, I mean, like, you, you. Okay, here's the thing. All three of them, Joe, obviously, producer of the podcast, and, and Sean Douglas, who's been on the podcast, Julian Bennett, a friend of the podcast, you know, these are all like, um, they're really, I mean, they're, they're pop writers, and you've embraced them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of part of what makes this generation of all writers pretty cool. I mean, we were talking right before this about how you should come to LA and do some pop sessions, yeah. you know, and, and that it's not it's not so genre based. Yeah. But you've now had hits with those three yeah. pop writers in particular. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna ask that again. Joe, Sean, and Julian. So sick. So sick. <laughs> um no, like it's it's been really cool because I've told this story before, but um there is no reason in the world that uh, Joe and Sean and me should have had any success. You know what I'm saying? Like, I literally was in LA for three days, and uh, Warner, I guess, put a, put me in the room with Joe and Sean, and they had written songs together before, but we hadn't. And we wrote a song that still, I think, is sick that we haven't finished. Um, and I, remember, I randomly asked them if they wanted to come on the road with me for three days, and I, I, I can't believe they said yes. And so, like, the first time they came out with me was like to the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. And like the first day they came out was like we wrote Die Happy Man. And, you know, the universe has a funny way of like putting people that need to be together. And the fact that, you know, I probably would have never, never written with Julian if he wasn't, uh, you know, dating my manager. <laughs> right. And, you know, she, she put me in the room with him. And, and I think the, 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 the thing that all three of them have in common is that there's just zero pressure at all. It's like... If we get in the room one day and we write for seven hours and come up with nothing, but all we all we did was have a good time, then it was still a successful day. Hundred percent. And I think you know when you have people that are not, all right. Well, we haven't written a hook yet. Like we need to like go get some coffee and write a hook. It's like when you do that, you put pressure on the whole situation. And right. I think those three people are just very good at hanging first and foremost. Do you bring that to other sessions? That vibe. Um. As far as like, I don't care if we write anything. Yeah. I, I mean, wish I, a, I wish I could say that, but I think I'm a little more high strung than all three of them combined. So. That's a really valuable thing, though. If you walk away with a, you know, a pre-chorus, that's yeah. a successful day. If it's a really good pre-chorus, yeah. you can come back and work on that. But if you have a, yeah, you know, and if you walk away with nothing, you probably strummed a guitar and sang, yeah, some crappy melodies and lyrics. But at least like, it's better you than tried. digging ditches. It's better than digging ditches, yeah, for sure. But I, you know. I think one of the most massive things I learned from the three of them that we we are not good at this in country music, like especially, um, you know, when you when you do do a co-write in Nashville, it's like there are certain writers that I write with that like it's not a it's not a successful day unless you wrote two entire songs and got like the demo vocal down ready to pitch like that day. Have you ever gotten a cut that way? Uh, no, yeah, I don't think so. But I think like when I write. Um, LA just has a whole different set of rules to me because when I have done certain pop sessions for myself, like sometimes they don't start until, like you were talking about, like 11 p.m. and like I'm de- I'm done at 11 p.m. But one thing I did learn from those guys is like taking time to finish a song. Like in Nashville, we're just like, okay, that verse is okay, the second verse is okay, the chorus is great, let's pitch it. Like I feel like, especially right with Joe. Um, and Julian and Sean, it's like, let's take our time. Like, this verse is really great, so let's revisit it in three months when, when we're back together. Sure. Um, and I think I learned a lot of patience about songwriting with those guys, which, is, which has been really uh, productive. In actually writing, you know, country versus pop records, in your opinion, is there a difference in sort of the, I always call it like math, like the, you know, the composition of it? Do you yeah. see, what's the difference between, you know, now, I mean, especially in 2017, there in the the line becomes more and more blurred. But what's the difference between, you know, a pop record and a country record to you? I feel like today they're blending so much. Like there's certain songs that I hear on pop radio that I could that I can hear on country radio as well. Like freaking like uh, Galloway Girl or 
Castle on the Hill, I could definitely, I mean, those, those, are, those are country songs to me. Right. Even some of the Shawn Mendes stuff kind of sounds like it could, could like I could put my voice on it and put it on country radio, it would be a hit. Um, but I do feel like, I do, and I, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I do feel like the writing in LA or even just in the pop world is just, is always just a little bit more clever than what we do. Um, and I do feel like in country, there we have a we have a way bigger set of guidelines we have to follow. If that makes any sense, like I feel like on pop, it's encouraged to go way out to do something that's completely different and fresh, to do something that is just like out of your mind, kind of crazy. In country, uh, we do have this set of rules that it's like, you know, your production can't it can be kind of far, but it can't be too far, and your content can be a little bit to the left, but it can't be too far to the left. Because you're still catering to such a wide variety of traditional country music fans, of folk country music fans, of pop country fans, of of rock country fans, and so like when you're all being played on the same radio station, everything can be a little bit different, but it all sort of has to fit in this line, or else you're probably not going to have a hit with that song. Um, I experienced it on a song that me and Joe wrote called "Vacation," probably the most farthest. Looking back at it now, it doesn't even sound that progressive. But then it was definitely like the weirdest thing that had ever been on country radio. And I saw the repercussions of that to where it died at 33 on the chart. But it's still like the biggest song we play in our set. And it sold more downloads than a couple songs that I've had that have gone number one. So, Did it shape? That's interesting. So even though it does well, you know, downloads-wise and streaming-wise, it doesn't translate to radio. So is no. radio just the older, older format? I still think today, I think radio is definitely the king in country music because there are so many country music fans that get, they let their radio station tell them what is cool. So kind of at the end of the day, you're sort of at the mercy of the program director. Um, and you know, thank goodness for those people that do play our music because without them, there's a whole lot of people that are not, they don't have any idea what our new single is. You know, I think that country music is a little bit farther behind on the streaming side than the pop side because if you look at pop and hip hop like you know Drake has a billion streams on a song and our highest stream song ever is like 150 million right that's a massive gap it's with so. the first uh, in the top 40 I, I, on on Spotify and Apple at any given time I think there's maybe two non hip hop songs yeah so whatever is going on in the streaming community either younger people are listening to hip hop primarily or it's a cultural thing, but for whatever reason, there's you know why 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 aren't people who listen to country streaming? Um, is there any logic to that? I just think that country music as a whole is just way more traditional than every other genre. So like you have people that are forty to eighty years old that have never they don't even they might not even know what Spotify is. Sure. Like they're still you know even on my sales even my fan base is more of like seventeen to. 30, you know, 40% of my overall sales are still physical consumption. Wow. So like they're going to iTunes and they're downloading or they're going to Walmart and Target. And so like my streaming is a fraction of, of, of how people are consuming my music. And I think that like, I just think people are just more traditional uh, in country music and they, they like to stick to what is old and what, and what they know. So, Do you ever walk into stores and buy your own CD? I mean, I bought my last record. You have to, right? Yeah. But I honestly think on my new album, I probably will just like check it out on Spotify. That's terrible. You're just like, I don't want to spend, you know, $14.99. Well, it's not even that. It's, I don't care about spending the $14.99. It's the inconvenience of going to Target. Right. When I could sit in my living room and just hit play. Right. You know what I'm saying? Make a cocktail. Right. A beverage. Make a beverage. (laughs) A non alcoholic cocktail. A mocktail. A mocktail. Yeah. Um, so I asked, I asked Twitter. I said, "Look, I'm 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 about to do a an interview with a a country, a country star. Is there any questions that I should ask?" Yeah, and should be interesting. And Luke Laird responds, oh, God. "Of course." <laughs> he goes, "If it's Thomas Rhett, <laughs> ask him who he likes to write with more: Ashley Gorley or Shane McAnally." <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm never gonna be able to write with him ever again. Um, both both people inspire me to be better songwriters. Yeah. Um, when I was telling you earlier about there's people in our genre that if you don't get two songs in a day, then your day wasn't successful, and that person is Ashley Gorley. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll and he he knows that about himself. 
but it it's shocking to to witness though because it, no, he is so fast and he's you know when you have thirty three number one songs yeah. You know, the that's math his works. method. Yeah, yeah his, the math works. And I love it, man, because when I'm on the road, I love to just freaking crank them out. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I, Ashley Gorley came out with me on the road um, twice last year. Mm-hmm. And I think of the six total days we wrote, we wrote like 13 songs. Wow. And I cut four of them. Right. So it's like, in some ways it is quantity over quality, but at the same time, in that quantity, there are a few Gems, right? You know what I'm saying, and then it, and then the other ones can still get cut by other artists. So like, I look at writing like Ashley Gorley. Like most of the time, when you write with Ashley, it's going to pay off in some, in some way. Sure. Yeah. Shane, uh, Shane is the same. Shane is ve- is a very fast writer. Um, and when I'm with Shane, my brain always goes a little bit more quirky. Like for some reason, when I write with Shane, it's like it's okay to write something. That is not totally mainstream. If that makes any sense. Do you guys so. text Luke and tell him that he's missing out? <laughs> <laughs> Writing with Luke, honestly, dude, I think Luke Laird is probably my favorite co-write in the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's another. Uh, what's What's interesting is the amount of of producers and writers that listen to a lot of a lot of pop. I, th- yeah. I think the idea of I think people think that countries in the is sort of I would even imagine a lot of country star or, or sorry country fans would think that this that it's shocking how much country you know stars and producers listen to other genres yeah. and are influenced by you know 90s hip hop yeah absolutely or, you know I think that's pretty shocking and someone like Luke and Ashley talk about it and they yeah. both come to LA mm-hmm. and they're also writing pop I think it's just I think people are just sort of surprised to realize how much there isn't really a wall in between the two yeah um, but I will say this about about what I what I personally think about the majority of the world's view of country music which is the main reason I think that country music right now is not one of those things that is global like like pop or hip hop is that I think everyone's still there's a lot of people that just think that country music is still just nothing but belt buckles and cows right and like I just think that's the perception and so like when you are someone that has no idea what what modern country music is and you you know you say you live in New York or you live in LA and like having a farm or having a truck or having cows is not your thing that's what you think that that music is therefore you're just immediately turned off of it but what I think what a lot of the world doesn't know is how progressive country is today and that basically pop is like one of our biggest influences. It's just that we talk a little bit different, if that makes any sense. I don't no, know. No, of course. I think one of the things that you're doing um, outside of music that's really interesting is there was, you know, you're about to have a child. By the time this comes out, you'll probably have had the child. Yeah. And you just ado- adopted a child. Mm-hmm. And um, that's become something that you guys have been very vocal about. Yeah. And that also feels like it's not as common in, in Nashville. Yeah. Like the concept. Um, can you kind of go through some of that history? Because I think this is a really important thing yeah. that you guys are doing. Well, just as far as like how the adoption happened and sure. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, in the short, short version... Uh, Lauren and I tried to get pregnant for a, about a year and nothing ever happened. And so we always knew that we wanted to adopt at some point. Um, Lauren's, Lauren's mom is adopted. Uh-huh. And I think that it's kind of always been on Lauren's heart to adopt. And therefore, because it was on her heart, it kind of transferred to my heart as well. Um, and so my wife does a lot of uh, mission work with this organization called 147 Million Orphans, and basically they're a, they're a uh, organization that helps get clean water and food and shelter and health to uh, an orphanage in Haiti and an orphanage in Uganda. So my wife went on a trip over to Uganda last or two December's ago, uh, and we found out she found out about this this child that um, basically had been orphaned since she was about two weeks old, uh, and so we started kind of giving a little bit of money to help. You know, get this child some some milk and clean water and diapers and and all that kind of stuff. And so, 
my wife started going back and we started to watch this little girl start to grow up. And uh, when she was about six months old, my wife finally sent me a picture of them two together like Lauren was holding her. And I can't fully describe it, but it sort of felt like she was ours. Like I'd never seen my wife like glowing like that when she was holding that girl, that girl. And Lauren called me on the phone the next day and was like, we need to find this little girl at home. And I literally just blurted it out. Like I was like, we need to bring her home. I don't even remember saying that. Um, it was just kind of like an instinct thing that I was just like, well, if she needs a home, then we'll give her a home. Um, and so the process took a little bit over a year, which in a lot of terms is shorter than a lot of processes. But uh, yeah, we just got her home almost a month ago. What's her name? Um, in the orphanage, they called her Blessing. So technically her legal name right now is Blessing Veronica. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but we, um, we named her Willa Gray Aikens. That's awesome. Yeah, Willa after my grandfather and then Gray after her brother Grayson. So, And then as we're in Africa and Uganda figuring out this whole process, bam, you get pregnant. That's what, that's what a night in Amsterdam will do for you. So, that's so funny. Yeah. I mean, that's the, in a weird sort of way, it's the dream scenario. How many kids do you want to have? Do you want to have? I think Lauren would love to have five. Oh, wow. Yeah, I would be good at about three. How many, do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have two. I have a sister and a brother. So that's why three is. Yeah, and she has three too, but I think she just envisions these massive Thanksgivings and Christmases. It's kind of nice to start though with, um, start with, in a way, I mean, they're twins. They basically are. They're basically twins, you know, or in a weird sort of way, what you call like Irish twins, because they'll be within. Within two years. You know, yeah, within two years of each Mm -hmm. other. And it's like. Uh, you'll be able. The hand me downs are going to be really easy. Oh yeah, you know we're, what I mean. We're recycling everything. For yeah, sure. for sure. So. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, thank you for doing this. Yeah, I, I think you are. Uh, when you're saying that you want to sort of set out a goal of being honest to yourself, to not shy away from who you are, as far as musically being influenced by multiple genres, you know, it's really apparent. You're reaching out to the pop writing community. You're reaching out to the artist community when you have people like Lunch on your records yeah. and you have people like, you know, some of the ones that we won't name yet that it might be part of the new album yeah. and, you know, the having Marin on it and having and writing with people from all different generations. Yeah. You know, you're you're part of you're doing in Nashville what we really hope is happening in, in LA, which is sure. that we're changing the conversation to not being so isolationist and not right. being so elitist in a way. Yeah. And and to just say, no, 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 it's just good music. Like exactly. that's a good song. So I'm gonna release that song because it's good. Because it's good. And yeah. not because it fits a mold. Cause if it fits a mold, then I already have it because that exactly. mold's been made. So yeah. you know you're you're doing something really special, and uh, I you, appreciate man. your work and thank you for doing this. Well, likewise, dude. I appreciate it. All right, thanks. Don't miss the 51st annual CMA Awards this Wednesday at eight o'clock, seven o'clock Central on ABC. See performances by your favorite artists, including Garth Brooks, Carrie Underwood, Luke Bryan, and many more. For more information, visit cmaawards.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Here's a sneak peek of next week's And the Writer Is. What's really cool is, uh, so I was kind of floating in between the labels. I didn't know which one I wanted to go to because I really liked everybody at, at all the labels. And I was talking to Bruce Hinton, the head of MCA, and he said, what's it going to take to get you? Well, I mean, what is it? You want more money? What do you want? And I said, I would really, it would really be cool if Reba McIntyre and her husband managed me, you know? And he's like, let me call him real quick. He just picks up the phone and calls Norville Blackstock and was like, hey, I got this kid, blah, blah. So I, I'd known Norville, Norville a little bit. And then a couple of weeks later, Norville and Reba are driving to Huntsville, Alabama for their tour rehearsal, and I get a call, and Reba's on the phone, and she's like, hey, Rhett, 
you want to work with us? You know what I mean? It was like it, it was like everything just started rolling. I, Reba then I went on tour. Yeah, I'm on tour with Reba. I mean, I've never yeah. I've never been in front of an audience. I mean, I've played in front of like yeah, you were doing like frat, frat houses and yeah. stuff, but I've never been with a whole band and and our own amps and mics and twenty thousand people. And next thing you know, I'm opening for Reba McIntyre. Were you terribly nervous? I was. I, I was like about to die. Like I was praying backstage that this was a dream. Like I was. I, I wanted to not do this anymore. I was like, I'm gonna die out there. Like. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hold up! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.